Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning, and welcome to service this morning. Last week, I talked to you about original sin, and we got into the book of Romans a little bit. And this morning, I want to continue in the book of Romans. I want to talk about what Paul was saying to us and to to the people then about making excuses. And we all know that excuses are like elbows. Everybody's got two. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. In the book of Romans, Paul is writing to people he had never met before except for the few he mentions in his last chapter. So we might wonder, why was he blasting the Gentiles in chapter 1 and then doing the same to the Jews in chapter 2? One thing to consider here is that the early church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and this particular church was in a very Gentile-dominated world. So, in chapter 1, he's addressing the Gentiles and reminding them that the way in which they had been raised in Rome was totally depraved, okay? And their lives had been immersed in every kind of sin imaginable. And then, in chapter 2, he's speaking to the Jewish members and he's reminding them that those who were so quick to condemn the Gentiles for their background, were just as guilty of sin as they were. Keep in mind that the Jews were quite proud of the fact that they had known the scriptures, but they were just as sinful as the Gentiles from God's perspective. We tend to classify sinners as the very bad and those who are trying to be good, but God doesn't see any difference between an unsaved pervert or an unsaved church member. No difference in his eyes. They are both lost and on their way to hell. So, 
He's addressing believers, and the very first thing he says in verse 1 is, you have no excuse, and my question is, why would they even need one? Why do they need the excuse? But he says, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the exact same thing. Now I want to build on this message a little bit around three points. And the first one is the excuses people think they have. And then we're going to roll into judging as a Christian pastime. And then finally this morning, the rewards for those who think they're saved, but they're not. And I like to use alliteration because it sounds good, but I couldn't think of any today, so we're going to go past that, okay? And besides, most, most of you will probably forget it after I said it anyway, so we'll just move on, all right? But let me go into my first point. The excuses people think they have. He begins by telling the Jews that they have no excuse when it comes to judging others because they are guilty of the very same things they're condemning others for. And this applies not only to the Jews, but to the rest of us as well. We say, I wasn't judging anyone. I was just making an observation. I wasn't judging. I was just sharing about their sin so that others could pray for this person. Or we might say, I wasn't judging, I was just inspecting spiritual fruit. Listen, judging isn't simply evaluating someone, but underneath our spiritualizing, we're condemning. Do we understand that? We are actually condemning. Passing sentence and then announcing a verdict. As much as we might hate to admit it, it makes us feel better to put someone else down. As one writer said, the self-righteous scream judgments against others to hide the noise of the skeletons dancing in their own closets. Paul tells these believers, you have no excuse. Did you know that the three most common excuses are, I forgot, no one told me ahead of time and I just didn't think it was that important. What do these excuses have in common? It's that they were not important to you. Therefore, it didn't make sense for you to give it the time of day. There are several people in the Bible who were well known for their excuses. And I think the most memorable is in the Old Testament with Saul. The passage that summarizes this the best with his attitude is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And you can make a reference to that. But Saul was told by the prophet Samuel in verse 3 to go back and attack Amalek and to utterly destroy all that they had. And do not spare a single person. So kill both man, kill woman, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now obviously, God was extremely angry with these people and he intended to wipe them off the face of the earth. 
So Saul and his people attack. And then in verse 8 it says he kept Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And then in verse 9, he blames the people when he says the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. He didn't follow through with God's orders here. Okay? But everything despised and worthless, they were utterly destroyed. See, they picked and chosen what they thought was important to them, and that's how they reacted. That's how they proceeded. But that's not what God intended it to be. And when Samuel confronts Saul about his sin of disobedience, Saul responds by saying in verse 15, and you can reference, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. But when Samuel pointed out that he had done wrong, we see his response In verses 18 through 20, what it says, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gagal. In other words, you've got it all wrong. I am the hero of this battle, and even though everyone else messed up, they had good intentions because they weren't going to keep these animals. They were going to use them to sacrifice to God. You see the rationalization here? They, they rationalized that it was okay to do it that way because it felt right to them. They made that decision for themselves. Instead of following what God had planned for them to do, They took it upon themselves to do what they wanted to do. They thought the use of sacrificing these animals would bring more glory to God. When in fact, they were bringing glory to themselves because they were doing what they wanted to do. It goes on in verse 24. And Samuel announces that God has rejected him from being king. And it says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. There he says, I did wrong. And the reason I did it was because I was afraid of the people and listened to them. You might be able to compare and contrast here what we are going through. The government wants to shut us down. They don't want to see us worshiping. They don't want us to reach the masses. And they're hoping that we're just going to oblige. That we're, not, we're just going to take this sitting down. Well, I've got news for you. We are not going to sit down. We are not going to oblige. We are going to continue to fight and fight for what is right. We are going to stand for truth because that is what God has asked us 
to do. God has won the war, but we still have to fight the battles. And we as Christians need to stand up and fight those battles. Listen. In what was, what was said here with Saul and Samuel, there was no real confusion and no real repentance. Just, all right, I said I was wrong. You realize there was no real confession. There was, there was not going to be real repentance. He said what he needed to say just to give him lip service. To get him off his back. Okay, yeah, I, I, what I did was wrong. Let, let, let's move on. There was no consequence here. Which is why he would continue to act in this manner. It's why we continue to act in those manners. Because there's no real consequence. We're not being called out. When we surely should be called out. In the New Testament, we see Jesus dealing with those who were making excuses for their lack of service. In Luke 9, 57 through 62, it says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The first man says, I will follow you wherever you go. After all, it had been exciting to follow Jesus, right? Amazing things had been happening. Food had been provided, people had been cured of anything and everything, and even had a even been raised from the dead. We read about this. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that exciting ministry like that? I would sign up. Jesus responds to his offer by pointing out something he didn't seem to notice when he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What he was telling him was, ministry isn't all fun and enjoying yourself. And if you hang around long enough, there will be times when the animals are better off than you. Now do you want to sign up? The Christian life is a life of joy, but that doesn't mean the crowds will always be on your side. So Jesus told this guy, ministry has a price. And if you're not willing to pay it, ministry is not for you. The second guy says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now I always thought this one sounds kind of harsh. You know, skip the funeral and head for the mission field. But... Obviously, this man's father hadn't died. He wasn't even sick. 
but he was very concerned with his relationship with his father, or maybe, just maybe, he was concerned with the inheritance that he was with following Jesus. In other words, his father had more to offer him than Jesus ever could in his mind. In either case, Jesus told him to focus on preaching and forget about everything else. The third guy said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell for who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, says, no one having his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Sounds like he wanted to go home and say goodbye, but by Jesus' response, it seems to me as though he, he wanted to go home and announce his intentions. And Jesus probably very well knew that they would talk him out of it. Jesus used an interesting illustration when he said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Imagine if you're plowing a field and kept looking over your shoulder to see where you've been or how things are going. We all know what happens. You can't plow in a straight line. Mistakes will be made. You see, we need to focus on where we're going, not where we've been. The first man wanted the fame that goes with the ministry, not the discomfort or inconvenience. The second wanted to look like he was willing to serve, but was too focused on what he was leaving behind. And then the third wasn't really sure he was called to the ministry and needed a good excuse to stay home. They all wanted to serve, but they all had their excuses. And did you notice that Jesus didn't beg them to stay or try to change their mind? He knew the first guy would quit as soon as things got rough. He knew the second was too preoccupied with all that he was leaving behind. And obviously the third had his priorities mixed up and was more connected to his family than he was to the Lord. Notice that none of them had chosen anything sinful, but they were just committed to themselves and their own plans. How many can attest to that? We're more concerned about what we have in front of us instead of what God has laid out for us. Benjamin Franklin says this. He said, that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Now I've... I've obviously heard a lot of good excuses why people say they don't want to get saved and many other excuses for many other things. One man said, I was in the war and I saw things that no one should ever see. And then he said, it's easy for people like you to talk about heaven because you've never come face to face with hell itself. I assure you that I have. It may not have been the same, but I assure you that I have been in situations where it seemed like hell. And somehow, he seemed to think that God was in his debt for all the things that he had gone through. Another man said, I was raised in a Christian home where you went to church every time the doors were open. But when we got home, we were beat within an inch of our lives. For anything that made my father angry. And he was convinced that every Christian was nothing more than a hypocrite. 
We seem to have that stigma a lot. And quite honestly, we're not giving them any reason to believe otherwise. We are being hypocritical. We claim to stand for truth. But a lot of us are sitting down. And many more had been turned off by someone somewhere who had claimed to be a Christian, but they didn't live it. Another said, I just can't seem to live the Christian life. Well, the fact is, folks, none of us can. But when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, he puts his Holy Spirit in our hearts and enable us to live the way that he would have us live it. It's not by our own power we live a Christian life. We don't know how to do that. And even when we do know how to do it, we fail miserably at it. Because we don't allow God to be God, like I mentioned last week. We have to allow God to be God. Listen, there are more excuses than there are people. But when we stand before God's throne, we won't be compared with one another. But we'll be compared and we will stand face to face with Jesus Christ himself and he will compare our sinfulness to his glory. And we'll realize that all of our excuses are just that. They're excuses for why we didn't serve him the way we knew we should have. At the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1952, there were special invitations sent out, and on them were the words, All excuses cease. There were no RSVPs, but everyone who got an invitation was expected to be there, and the same is true with the kingdom of God. And then he warns them in verses 2 through 4. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's judgment refers to the time of his eternal evaluation of you and of me. And it's based on his all-knowing, all-powerful truth, which means he knows everything and can be anything. So everyone will be without excuse. Verse 3 says that when you and I are so busy judging one another... How can we escape the judgment of God? Paul seems to sense an objection because some might assume that since they're enjoying wealth and prosperity, obviously without any consequence, that somehow they have escaped the judgment of God. We always say, how come this person over here who lives a life of sin is blessed with money, with job, food, Everything that we deem as socially acceptable and socially great. Why is that person being blessed and I am not? God, I follow you. I listen. I pray. I attend service. I reach out to those who desperately need you. 
Lord, I feel like you make me destitute. Have we ever felt that way? Why are you allowing this to happen? It's because he has a plan for that. He's teaching us. He is molding us into the plan that is set before us. We need to be more cognizant of that. We need to realize that our path is the wrong way. We're, we're the ones that look over our shoulders. And then we make mistakes all the way through. Instead of allowing God to keep our eyes forward and plow that field straight. We're so worried about past mistakes that we make ten new ones in the process. You see, I think Paul is speaking here to both the Gentiles who see themselves above all the idolaters of their society as well as the Jews who see themselves above the Gentiles. And he's warning both that God's goodness to us is intended to lead us to repentance. So you may wonder why God has put you in your situation. He is leading you to repentance. To all things God and to his great purpose. Second point, judging as a Christian pastime. Boy, we're good at it. You know, we, we, we sit here and we can claim, you know, I'm a Christian, I don't pass judgment on you. Baloney. We've all done it, we continue to do it, and we need to repent from doing it. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You do the same things. Know that we, we, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? I've reiterated this over and over because, folks, we need to listen. We need to understand what it's really saying here. This is something that I would venture to say every Christian struggles with. Paul mentions the reason they had no excuses. And this was because while they were busy judging others, they were condemning themselves. Now most of us wrestle with this concept because we tend to look down at our nose at those. We think we're better than when, we, when God looks down and all he sees is two sinners, both of which need to be forgiven. When we are told not to stand in judgment of others, what does that mean? What does that mean? If I'm on a bus and I notice that the guy beside me has his hand in my pocket, is it wrong for me to assume he's trying to steal something? Or am I standing in judgment on him if I tell him he's a thief? Judging others is the idea of assuming things we don't know and there are things we need to avoid. First, we need to avoid a self-righteous attitude. In other words, it's not our job to look down on anyone who is trapped in sin because we are all sinners. And even though our sin might be socially acceptable, it is still sin. 
Second, we cannot judge anyone else's motives. How do you know their motive? It's easy to assume someone else's thoughts or intentions when something negative happens. But there are times we don't see the whole picture. And other times we don't see others as something from a completely different perspective. And, and, and either way, we assume they're wrong and we don't know all the facts. The fact is, we can't see into someone else's heart. Thank goodness. But I am glad, oh so glad... That God can. In Job chapter 1 verses 8 through 11 it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan was suggesting here that the only reason Job was serving God was for what he got in return. And from this we can see that to judge someone else's motives is satanic. This is what Satan does. He judges. He gets those who follow God to make judgment on others. This is why it's dangerous. Jesus says in Matthew 7 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If you want to judge others, you will be judged by the exact same standard that you use. And since God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, we need to realize that we are not God. So Paul was warning the Jews and about hypocrisy and the tendency to judge those who appear to be more sinful than we are. I think to an extent we all do this because we tend to use the way we see ourselves as the baseline for good and bad. Anyone who is better than us is good. And anyone who is worse than us is evil. I read about a psychology experiment where two people were given control to an electric shock machine. And they were told to ask a question, and if the other person got the question wrong, they would have delivered a shock to them. And it would go back and forth, and this went on for a time, but eventually each felt that they had been shocked more than the other. So, the level of shocks increased. I'm not sure what the experiment intended to prove, but it showed me that anything that happens to me will always be seen as worse than anything that happens to you. And so it is. When we judge one another, we don't define them. We define ourselves. Listen, God saved and used a lot of people we might have questions about. I mean, stop and think about someone who are are some of our heroes in the Bible. Noah seemed to have a drinking problem which led to immorality. 
Abraham was told that he was too old to have kids, and yet he did. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused and rejected by his brothers. Moses had a speech impediment of some kind, or at least he said he did. Gideon was fearful. Samson was a womanizer. Rehab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy both complained that they were too young. David had an affair, and then the woman's husband killed. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran away. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Not sure that's a sin, just gross. Peter denied Christ. The disciples all fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced at least four, if not five times. Zacchaeus was too short. Paul was too religious. And Lazarus, well, he was dead. And yet, God used every single one of them. But people say, you don't know the things that I've done. And I always say, no, but God knew us before he created us. And he knew where each of us would fail even before he saved us. So Paul was saying that the Jews were hypocritical if they were judging others while they were just as guilty themselves. Which leads to my final point this morning. The rewards for those who just think they're saved. There are many people who think they're saved. But they're in for a rude awakening when they meet God face to face. And I pray and I hope that that's not you. I pray that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that you are in conversation with him daily. Especially in a time like this. We don't need to turn away from God. We need to get closer to God. We need to find ways that even though we can't meet in a building, we find ways to worship with one another. We find ways to get around this because that's what they did then and that's what we're going to do now. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says, If you think you can pass judgment on others and show contempt for the mercy of God, you are simply storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And yes, I know I've repeated this several times already. But you need to know what he's warning about are the many who think they're saved, but they're actually lost. And not only are they lost for some reason, they think they're saved. How dangerous is that? We as Christians need to recognize this so that we can step in and allow God to rectify the situation. We need to be a witness to them. If they think they're saved and they're not, we're not doing our due diligence. No, I can't read their heart and not know where they stand, but God does and God's going to prod people to be a part of their life. To allow that to happen, to give them the assurance of salvation. We can't do that if we're constantly sitting at home. We can't do that when we're like Pastor said, sitting on our laurels. We can't be doing that. Even though you're not here. We can be doing something. 
We see an example of this in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice that the people who were condemned as unbelievers had actively been involved in a church. Active members were told, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evil doer. There are people who think they are saved, but they have no clue. Because when they hear of these things, they hear the sermon, they read the scripture, they're not actually listening. There is a difference between reading and there's a difference between understanding. Folks, if you don't understand what you're reading, if you don't understand what's being said to you, if you don't understand what God is trying to convey to you, I pray that you will stop where you're at and find somebody who does. Get the explanation. Don't make the excuse that nobody helped me. You gotta seek help for yourself. And yes, there are people ready and willing to facilitate that. We have to be a church of action. We have to be a church that cares for its people. But if we don't know where you stand, it's impossible for us to help. So you've got to take that step. You've got to stand up. You've got to make your voice heard. Avail yourself to the tools that God has provided to you. So it goes on to say, So they weren't saved and they lost their salvation. But he says, I never knew you. So in other words, they were never saved to begin with. Don't make the excuses now because when you get there and you're face to face, you can't make an excuse anymore. You're talking to the individual that knows your heart. You're talking to the individual that knows the excuse before you even utter it. And again in Matthew 13, we have the parable of the sower. And this parable is meant to demonstrate the various responses people have to the gospel. Look at the first two responses in verses 5 and 5 through 7, where it says, Some seed fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. So, both seeds showed signs of life. Maybe they respond publicly to an invitation. Or they had been given a huge financial gift for the ministry. And yet, they had never come to any level of spiritual maturity. These people weren't saved and then lost. But they were never saved to begin with. So why does Jesus tell us repeatedly about people who think they are saved but they are not? 
obviously because it is a major problem in the church. And the bigger the church is, the more reason people join, other than the fact that they're saved. They join bigger churches because they want to get lost in the mix. You know, they say that, oh, I I just want to be fed. I'm at a time in my life where I've done the work, but now I want to be fed. Yes, that's, that's great. But the reason we get fed is so that we have that energy and that spiritual energy to go out and feed somebody else. It's not a one and done deal. It is a recharging. It is a re-energizing way for us to take what we learn here and to apply it out there. We just can't sit back and think that God's going to handle everything. Yes, he is. But we have to fight the battles. We have to get out there and do the work. Some of the unsaved may have been raised to avoid the sins of the flesh and they enjoy fellowshipping with people that live like they do. Some of them might marry a believer and join the church to keep peace in the family. Some of them join because they like the programs they have for their children. Some join for business reasons. Either their boss goes to that church or maybe they hope to make contacts to sell something. There are even some who don't know that they believe, but they go because they enjoy both the music and the message. Some may have always gone to church and they're keeping up a family tradition. And then there are some whose friends and members, and they go just to be a part of the crowd. Like I said, they just get lost in the mix. We've all seen people come to church, attend the classes, get baptized, give a good testimony, then be accepted into membership and then never come back again. They believe that in order to go to heaven, you had to be a member of a church. And as far as they were concerned, they had done all that was expected that made them both saved and safe. They came for fire insurance. Shame on them for that. But shame on us for not recognizing that and following up on that. Calling them back into God's fold. But I will tell you this. It is not too late. We can still reach those people. And we can still reach people that are sitting in our pews. Don't let an opportunity go by to help. To be a vessel for God. Don't wait. Because I know some think they will be excused from judgment based on their birth rather than their new birth. And others feel they have the right to judge and be the jury of everyone else because while excusing their own sin, some think they will be rewarded when in fact they're going to be facing the judgment of God. A quick story and I will close. Ronald Reagan once had an aunt who took him to a shoemaker for a pair of new shoes. The shoemaker asked young Reagan, do you want square toes or round toes? Unable to decide, Reagan did not answer. So the shoemaker gave him a few days. Several days later, the shoemaker saw Reagan on the street and asked him again, what kind of toes would you want on the shoes? 
Reagan still couldn't decide, so the shoemaker said, Well, come by in a couple of days. Your shoes will be ready. When the future president did so, he found one square toe shoe and one round toe shoe. The shoemaker said, This will teach you to never let people make decisions for you. Reagan says, I learned right then and there, if you don't make your own decisions, someone else will do it for you. Does any of this ring a bell with you? It's our current situation. When all is said and done, what difference does it make if we drive that luxury car? Eat vitamin-enriched foods, wear expensive designer clothing, sleep on a name-brand mattress, live in a mansion with acres of land, and are buried in a mahogany casket in a cemetery as lovely as a botanical garden, only to rise up in judgment to meet a God we never knew. The Bible talks in terms of two categories for all mankind. There are believers and unbelievers. Sheep and goats. Wheat or tares. Those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. We are either in the spirit or we are in the flesh. There's the good tree or the bad tree. The narrow road and the broad road. And heaven and hell. Folks, where do you fit in? We are all sinners, and none of us are saved and on our way to heaven until we confess that sin and receive his forgiveness by his grace. This is the decision we must all make. J.B. Phillips wrote, The gospel message is meant to grip the mind, stab the conscience, warm the heart, save the soul, and sanctify the the life. It makes drunk sober, crooked people straight, and perverted people pure. It's a message sufficient to transform the life of all who believe. The gospel is a message with purpose, and its purpose is not to comfort people, especially in their sin, or even to challenge them to live above sin. But it is a message of believing in hope. And that hope will save them from their sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gather together and come into agreement in the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Where two or more are gathered, there you will be in the midst of us. And anything we agree upon as touching you will surely do. Father, there is no distance in the Spirit. And we thank you for the person that we're praying for this morning. Who desires a prayer to stop making excuses as to why you can't use them. Father, we ask you to please forgive all of us for not allowing you to use us as you desire. Lord, we've put this off long enough. And right now, we need to accept that you desire to use us to see your kingdom advance. We come against all excuses about why we can't be used and we rebuke them in your son's name. We reject all excuses and any further delay, Lord. Help the person we're praying for to stop ignoring your call. 
and to accept, Lord, that you have laid your hand upon them and you desire to use them. Lord, with an open heart, they embrace what you are calling them to do, and I pray they do that this morning. And Lord, we pray all these things in your wonderful and precious name. Amen. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.